You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. Join me and join this rich young ruler in Jesus turning all of our, all of our worlds upside down. I'll begin reading in verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last, up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. 
And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So, the last will be first, and the first last. We believe this is God's word, and I pray that it would become more than ink on a page and become God's very word to us today. Last week, Jesus corrected a minimalistic view of marriage and divorce, and this week, he corrects a minimalistic view of his grace. In a conversation with a rich young ruler about his possessions and what he feels like he has, and in a conversation with his disciples about what they think they are owed. The ruler goes away, and Peter protests. And so Jesus begins to correct them and their misconceptions about who God is and what Jesus is there to accomplish. And the term that he uses, he uses three different ones of them interchangeably that I'll commend to you to use your own imagination to think of. He uses three different terms. The first one comes from the rich young man. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus speaks about eternal life interchangeably with two other terms that you'll see for the rest of the New Testament. The next time he mentions this topic, he says the kingdom of God. Did you hear that? And then the disciples describe that same topic as who can be saved. Now think of what he's describing here, whether it's the rich young ruler looking for the most positive outcome or Jesus talking about the kingdom that God is bringing that will restore everything that's broken, or the disciples thinking about that as salvation. I want to commend that question to you. What is the most positive, amazing outcome you could imagine? Right now, what is the most amazing thing that would benefit you, bless you, encourage you, give you joy, happiness? What is, what is the most amazing outcome you can possibly imagine right now? What is the best possible thing? All the superlatives like, you know, piled up into one sentence. What is the best possible thing you can imagine happening to you? And let that serve as the same kind of concept. Let that serve as a replacement for you personally for what the rich young ruler describes as eternal life, what Jesus describes as the kingdom that he's bringing, and what the disciples describe as salvation. The greatest possible outcome that you can imagine. And Jesus corrects the confusion about good works with respect to that great outcome of eternal life, And then he corrects the confusion with his disciples about the role of service and rewards in light of that most glorious outcome. So let's begin to walk through it just briefly. There are are several parts of this particular passage. I think we, I boiled them down into three. First, the encounter with the rich young man. Second, Jesus' discussion with the disciples. And lastly, a parable that drives home the point he means to make. And the man who came evidently comes and wants a positive outcome. We don't think, evidently, like the, like the passage before, we don't think he's come with a cynical view to trap Jesus. It seems like he genuinely wants to know 
He genuinely cares about what Jesus can offer. So I want to start by pointing out some things that evidently he misses, and then some observations that I think we can draw from all these three things together. First, it seems that the man has a misconception about Jesus in thinking that Jesus can give him something in addition to the possessions that he had that he refused to give. So one of the first misconceptions that I would address simply this way goes like this. Jesus has not come to make your life better. He has come to make your life possible. Jesus has not come to make your life better. He's come to make it possible. You see, the man seems to think that whatever Jesus is offering, he can add to his life. He can have both all of his possessions, all of the the, the wonderful things he's been given. Seems to be a blessed man. Seems to be a very moral man. And yet he thinks that whatever, whatever Jesus has come to bring, he can have in addition to all of these other things. He thinks that Jesus has come to improve his life. And I would say that might be even the case for many of you this morning. Maybe that's, that's why you're here this morning. You're thinking like, I'm okay. I'm here because I'm okay. I'm vertical. I need, but, but here, how can you make my week a little bit better? How can you make my wife, uh, my wife, maybe that too. Uh, <laughs> Freudian slip. My wife doesn't need to be made better. She's amazing. But you might even think, like, how can my life get a little bit better? Like, how, how can Jesus improve? Maybe that's what you're thinking. Maybe I'll try out this Christianity thing, and it'll make things a little bit smoother, or things will go better for me. And I know many people, their, their base motivation, think of a culture in which Christianity is very popular, that might be something that would help them, right? If you just, like, if you have a business and you add Christian to the front of it, right? He's a Christian this for their own benefit, Right? Now, in most cultures, that's not the case, but that might be you this morning. Hey, what's the thing that Jesus can do to make my life a little bit better? And you would be misunderstanding who Jesus is and what he came to do, just like the rich young ruler. Namely, that Jesus doesn't come to the rich young ruler here as he thinks he does. The rich young ruler thinks he has a life. He thinks he already is alive. He thinks he has meaning and purpose, and Jesus can help fix it. But as you read the rest of the New Testament, the Gospel of John, Jesus says that I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Because apart from what Jesus has accomplished for us, the rest of the New Testament makes it clear because of our sin and our sinfulness, we are dead. We are dead and lifeless in our trespasses. Unless we are restored to God, we have no source of life. Jesus doesn't come to us to make our lives better, our lives better. He doesn't come to improve or clean up your life. That would assume that you have a life. And Jesus comes here to point out, you have no life apart from me. In fact, you see this as he wasn't willing to give up the things that were his life and missed out on Jesus entirely. Jesus didn't come to make our lives better. He came to make them possible. The second misconception I think can be helpful for us to think about is that uh, as he's correcting kind of the confusion that that this person is experiencing, the the second assumption that that seems to be not only in this encounter with the rich young ruler, but also with the disciples and even in the parable he tells us about this master who gives whatever he pleases to, to to whomever he pleases, however he pleases, If the first misconception is to think that we can add Jesus to our lives, the second misconception is to believe that the Christian life, to follow Jesus, is something that you can actually accomplish on your own. 
right? The first misconception is to think that God and what God has done for this person in Christ is something you can just have in addition. The second misconception is that having God is something you can actually do. But think of it this way. The focus of the Christian is not on the life of the Christian. The focus of the Christian is on Christ. The focus here is not on this person. And, and Jesus seems to, seems to walk along on that. That's, that's not going to work. We'll freeze it up. We'll... Maybe it'll happen. Maybe it won't. The focus of the Christian and the Christian life is not, you want me to just do it? I can swipe. This is the hero. This is the hero. I don't, I don't know what we do now. Oh, when, you know, anyway. So the focus of the Christian life is that it's not on necessarily what the Christian does, but on the life of Jesus. Now notice, he seems to think that there's something that he has the ability to do. Teacher, what good deed must I do? And you heard the disciples as they objected to kind of this interaction in which this man walked away sorrowful. And they're like, well, what about us? Like, look at what we've done. Even also to the, the illustration that he gives in, in the parable to say like, no, the wages that were distributed amongst these workers were not based on what they had done, but they were based on whatever the master chose to give. The second thing that this man gets wrong is to think that ultimately, Christianity or following Jesus is about something that he has done. Now, to the Christian in the room, let me ask it this way. Let me, let me, let me pose to you a question like this. How do you know that things are good? How do you know that you're okay? In the language of that kind of superlative, the best life, eternal life, salvation, in the kingdom, how do you know that you're in the kingdom? How do you know that you're saved? How do you know that you're in the good graces of God? And one of two things will likely happen. You'll try to answer that question first by simply starting the sentence with the word I. I'll say, how do you know you're good? How do you know you have joy? How do you know you have life? How do you know you're saved, Christian? How do you know that everything's okay? But if you start the answer in a sentence that has the word I at the beginning, you above all are in danger you above all are in the most danger. On the other hand, if I ask that same question, Christian, how do you know you're good? How do you know you have eternal life? How do you know you're saved? How do you know that you're a part of God's beautiful kingdom? And you start your answer, and that sentence starts with the word he, you're in good shape. You're in good shape. Because ultimately, the Christian life is not about what you have done. Now, we have some profound reminders of this. Every morning, every Sunday morning, we gather here, and, and you saw it just a moment ago. We sang a bunch of songs, none of which were about you. None of which were written to you. And we'll be reading a text It's not about you. But you'll know this. One of the greatest temptations you and I will have is the minute, the minute we leave this room, the minute we walk out, we'll start thinking about what? Us. We'll think about us. Me too. I mean, that'll be the first thing I think about. And notice something. Notice what he's offering here. The rich young ruler, and, and in the, the illustration of the parable, points to something, that ultimately the focus of the Christian is not in our own lives or the life of the Christian, but it's in the perfect life, atoning death, and victorious resurrection of Jesus. And when someone says, how do you know you're good? How do you know everything is okay? You get, this, you get to start with he. He. Let me tell you what he has done. So if those are the misconceptions that Jesus addresses, let me point out some of the, I think, summaries that we can see here, some principles I think we can learn. 
One, I think you find here something pretty profound, that when this man comes, he seems to want more. And in Jesus' interaction, as I said, it seems like he thinks he can earn it or do something. Good for him. He sees that Jesus is good, and Jesus seems to interact with him verbally, like, yes, only God is good. There's only one who is good. But, he says, if you would enter life, he says, then keep the commandments. And so he starts this kind of interesting interaction to which the man goes, okay, which ones? Now, already, I want to connect this to what we saw last week, this minimalistic view of marriage and divorce. It kind of comes at Jesus and says, like, hey, what's the least I can do and get by? Versus coming coming to the God of the universe and saying, what do you want, right? Here's a blank check. Take everything. So you already see some of the things kind of on display here. Which ones? And now look at what happens. This is amazing. Uh, I think there's probably three, three principles you can learn here. One, notice he meets and comes in contact with the real Jesus. He meets the real Jesus, and whenever anyone meets the real Jesus, one commentarian puts it this way, it is always shocking. It's rattling. That's how you know you've met Jesus. One of the only responses to Jesus that seems out of place for the New Testament is indifference. So if you're in this room, you wouldn't call yourself a believer. Maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. You're not sure. I'm so glad you're here. And I want you to know that there will be one of two proper responses. And, and, and you will think, oh, that's, I, don't, I don't know if I'm allowed to do that. But if you are deeply repulsed by how matter-of-fact and how, how sure of himself Jesus is when he speaks authoritatively on these topics, you're hearing him rightly. It is shocking. You don't get hung on a cross by telling people things that they want to hear. The response that's out of place is indifference. To think, oh, Jesus is Lord, that's nice, and you stir your coffee. You get the idea? It's proper to either worship, follow Jesus, abandon everything as this man was invited to do, follow him, give your life to him. Say, everything of mine is now yours. It's all yours. Or it's proper to go away and say, forget that guy. You can tell that he met the real Jesus because an encounter with Jesus is always rattling. Here's how I would illustrate it. it it's like this. It's a, you might see a child do this. Um, a child might have something and, and, they, and, they, and they take it. They have this thing and they take the thing and they put it behind their back. Right? And a child comes up to you and they're holding the thing behind their back, hoping that you don't see it. And, and in their efforts to keep this thing away, I mean, even now, right now you're thinking, like, is there anything, what's behind his back? Why is he doing that, right? It has a way of, in, in an effort to keep it out of view, it becomes the only thing you see. And, and any person, not a child, will go like, well, uh, okay, you know, tell me about that thing. One of the ways that you know you've met Jesus is that he has this ruthless ability in all of the encounters we see throughout the Gospels, but I believe also even for you this morning, if you'll let him, to say, give me the thing in your hand. What are you holding on to? And it's rattling, it's jarring. And yet, this is the picture of what it means to meet Jesus. To see him for what he is as Lord, not just something you can add to accessorize the life you've already made for yourself. And Jesus ruthlessly goes after that thing. So let me ask you, what's that thing? What's that thing 
There are many ways to get at it. One of it's like, what's the, what's the worst thing that's ever happened to you? What's the most important event in the entirety of your life? What's the thing you're most proud of? What's the thing you dream about? What's the wound that has hurt you the most deeply? What's the scar you carry? What's the part of your story you hope no one finds out about? What's the thing you wish you could keep a secret till the day you die? You get it? What's your greatest dream? What's your worst broken dream? Think of all the superlatives. Wrap it up there and, and hear Jesus come to you. And you know you've met him because he wants to talk about that thing. And he loves you too much to leave you in it. He knew, one of the things you see, you know something powerful happened because this man met the real Jesus. And Jesus went after the thing. So much so that he saw, kind of brought to the surface what this man was one, unable to give up. This man was unable to live life without this. I heard one put it this way, that whatever that thing is, that, like, uh, that, that, that deepest hurt, that greatest dream, that greatest disappointment, that deepest, darkest secret, whatever that highest ideal is, that thing that gives your life meaning, that will be the place, as a Christian talks about this, of idolatry, that is of worshiping something, again, quite literally here, something that you would rather have than God. You see that? That's, that's the, the bold picture of this interaction. The something this man would rather have than Jesus, and he walked sorrowfully away. That, that highest thing, that highest value, object, or experience, or, or thing that you have, it's the ultimate reason for your life beyond which you cannot think of anything higher or greater. Think of that thing in your life beyond which you cannot think of anything higher or greater. Just start looking at things, right? And just start asking, what's better? What's higher? What's even greater than that? And at the end of that process, right, just in, whatever you think, we're like, what's even greater than that? Like, what's the greatest thing you can think of? Think of that and go like, what's even greater than that? What's even greater than that? And when you, do, when you get to the highest possible thing you can imagine, the thing beyond which you cannot think of anything higher or greater, that's the thing that gives you purpose and meaning in life. It's the thing probably in your eyes that explains all of history. It's the thing in your eyes that explains everything, your purpose and meaning. Or, I mean, again, there's every, every culture kind of has a way of describing it. It might be best even in this culture to say it's the thing that gives you identity. It's who you are, apart from which you can't think of anything more important. And you know you've met the real Jesus when Jesus forces you to see that for what it is. Hey, have you noticed that this thing is your reason for living? Have you noticed that this, thing's an this thing animates everything you do and say? Every decision you make is either trying to get or protect this particular thing. Second thing you see here is that Jesus not only shows himself radically and powerfully, but he also begins to kind of correct some of the assumptions that he was already making. I mentioned those first two, that he thought that Jesus was just something that would upgrade his life or something that would just make his life better, rather than seeing that ultimately he was trying to get something that God alone can give. He was trying to point out the thing that this man was looking to for meaning and helping him realize that he was actually doing so in a pretty sordid way. Look, when he asked the questions, like, okay, here's what you should do. You should, you should, uh, you should enter, enter life through keeping these commandments. He says, which ones? Jesus, right? He's like, I'll allow it. I'll, I'll let you. I won't correct you in this. Let me just keep asking questions. And then he lists, Jesus says, all these outward things. But notice there's, there's two things that seem to be missing in this. 
there's at least two things that seem to be, two categories of the commandments that this man evidently left out. The first category is what we would describe as the vertical of the Ten Commandments. If you think of the Ten Commandments as like a list of vertical, love the Lord your God, do not take his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath. You get the idea of no other gods before me. Notice, he doesn't mention any of the vertical. He only mentions the horizontal, to which this man goes, got it, nailed it. So look at what he's saying. He's saying something I think you and I can relate to pretty powerfully. Every single one of us wants to receive accolade, affirmation, in and of ourselves apart from God. Every one of us wants to, to, in the end, look for affirmation, accolade, without any qualification that's just for us, apart from God. And notice, this man had developed a pretty confident repertoire. This is where he could even say, like, look, look at this. I did all these things. Notice, all with the stunning absence of God. Now, that'll shock you that you could build a life, a moral life even, all apart from the power of God. The second thing it shows is that he ignored the other category. That is, we call them the invisible category of the commandments. Like, love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind, and do not covet. Notice, the invisible categories are not here, and what you find is that this man is evidently fairly vain, because the commandments that he especially, especially cares about obeying are the ones that make him look a certain way. Can you relate to that as well? You do what you do based on what people think of you? Oh, never mind about those, those things expected of me that are vertical, that relate me to the Father. Never mind about those things that are invisible that no one will know about. You get the idea? And so look, he met Jesus face to face, and Jesus began to correct this man's view. The last thing, notice that Jesus gets deeply and powerfully personal with respect to eternity and treasure. He gets personal. He goes right after the man personally. Now, I say that because if you'll notice, his demands don't show up anywhere else, right? So he says, give up everything. He says, what one thing, right? And then he says, well, I'll give you three. Give up everything, give it to people who need to benefit from it, and then follow me. But notice, he never says this again. It's not like, you never see this for the rest of the New Testament. This is, like a, this is not like a normal thing that evidently is expected of people. What we find here evidently is a, is a perfectly formed, tailored to fit thing that Jesus speaks to this one man. And I would say he does the same for you and for me. The thing that is demanded of us, the thing that will hinder us from experiencing life and joy in Jesus is not the same around this room. And maybe it is similar. Maybe you are, right, youthful, influential, powerful, right? Maybe you are those things, like this rich young ruler. All at a young age, right? Well done. And yet Jesus does something amazing. He gets incredibly personal. He speaks to this person exactly as he needs to hear. And he points out this thing that you're, they're lacking, this thing that you're longing for, is something that you may not have readily understood, but he points it out personally. Here's how I would illustrate this. This man came to Jesus expecting Jesus probably to tell him what he already knew or at least to give him some more things to do as he asked. And yet Jesus does something. He speaks personally 
He speaks powerfully to this man's situation, and he will do the same for you. I don't know what that will be, but I do know what it will look like. And I'll give you an illustration that I have to use because I think it's expired and it doesn't work anymore, um, but I'll do it anyway. I'll show my age, and, uh, and, and maybe, maybe you'll help me find a better analogy. But back in the day when we would go play video games at the arcade, uh, you would put coins, those are these little metal things that are worth nothing, uh, you put them in the machine, or maybe it was at a pay phone. This was back when you had to pay for a phone that actually called things. I know. You'd put a coin in there, or maybe you can relate to this, like a vending machine uh, that, again, no one uses money for because no one can make a dollar bill flat enough to use it. Use a credit card. You get the idea. So imagine this analogy. We would go to the arcade, and we would put a coin in there, and, and the engineers were so smart, they would build this little button to help you unjam the coin, which it would inevitably always do. And when that didn't work, when the coin didn't drop into the, the, the payphone or into the video game or, or into the vending machine, can you imagine what I and other people started to do? What did we start to do to this machine in order to, and this is where the phrase comes from, so that the coin will drop? Because after all, when the coin drops, the thing comes to life. It, it, it comes alive, and all of a sudden, it becomes what it's supposed to de- all, do, all when the coin finally drops. And one of the things that Jesus does here, even if this man doesn't get it in this moment, is he helps protect us from our greatest temptation, probably as Westerners, is to cerebralize or to intellectualize or to theorize about Jesus without letting it hit us personally. After all, that's one of our, that's probably the best thing we can do. And it's good. It helps us be distant from things and not overly emotional or connected to things that shouldn't be that way. We can be wise and discerning. And yet, it allows us to think about things without actually knowing or internalizing them intimately. After all, one of the most powerful things we believe, the Christian, the Christian conviction that when we read this, this book, this Bible, it's unlike any other book. We read this book and we don't just get content, we actually get the author. There's no other book like that. After all, try that, right? Like, read a, read a book from a famous author and then tell somebody, like, I read that book. I basically know him. We're basically friends, right? But that's how we can often feel. And Jesus does something profoundly helpful. He helps correct this man, and he does it in a very personal way. But I want to warn you what that will look like for you. As Jesus begins to show you what really owns you and controls your life, the thing that you really can't live without, it will feel a lot like, I don't know, what was your answer? How do, you, how do you loosen that coin to drop in the machine? I'd shake it, right? Maybe, maybe hit it and God help us if it were to kick it. And I want you to know this is exactly what this might feel like for you. And to keep from going away sorrowful, which is inevitably what it will feel like, see what Jesus is doing. The first thing that he's doing to help drop the coin, for us in this case, from just something that we might know to be true, something we might conceive of as possible. Yes, there was, if, if Jesus is who he says he was, if there really was a man who, who taught powerfully, who performed miracles, who died and then predicted his own resurrection and did it, I think intellectually all of you could go like, well, that would, that's a big deal. That might be the biggest deal that's ever happened. And yet the process of actually seeing that coin drop might be God's kindness and grace that feels a lot like shaking. So be comforted. I suspect most of us in this room are being shaken. Something is rattling us. 
Look also at one of the things you see, uh, I think, is this rich young ruler had everything and yet came to Jesus. Look what we see here in verse 20. And still said, what do I still lack? He had everything he had wanted, and yet he still felt like he lacked something. What a profound principle is that often, often we can think we have everything we want and find that it doesn't satisfy. Let me go back for a little while. Um, several years ago, as a church, uh, we were going through books of the Bible, and we went through uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. And I didn't know if it was going to be a good idea, but it seemed like I wanted to do that. It seemed like this, we, we were praying about this, thinking about this. Went through the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a very dark and sobering book. It's written by the man uh, by the name of Solomon. And what you find is there's something profound in the book of Ecclesiastes that, that was transformational for our church that we often think of despair and sorrow in terms of something that we haven't gotten yet. We're sorrowful because we haven't gotten that thing, right? We haven't gotten that date, that spouse, or we haven't, you know, like, haven't gotten that one, right? Haven't gotten that job, that achievement, haven't gotten that happiness, or right? that family, that promotion, that, that status, that, that wealth, right? That, that comfort. We haven't gotten that thing. And there's a deep sorrow that comes when we don't get the thing that we long for. But one of the things that the Bible offers for us, especially in the book of Ecclesiastes, is there's actually a worse and greater sorrow when you get the thing you've longed for and you realize how unsatisfying it is. And there is a deeper sorrow in life when you spend it trying to get something that does not satisfy and leaves you like this rich young ruler. Like, what else would you want? Youthful, wealthy, powerful? And yet, what do we find him doing? Ecclesiastes chapter 2 says it this way. Solomon describes his journey into finding meaning, his journey into finding satisfaction. He says, I said to myself in my own heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Maybe that's how some of you have thought of like the real good life is pleasure, freedom from pain. But behold, he said, this was vanity. I said of laughter. Right? He tried to find happiness and mirth and laughter and joy. He said, it is madness. And of pleasure, that's what I know what you love me. If I just had more pleasure, he says, what use is it? I searched my heart how to cheer my body with wine. That's a way to maybe find some fleeting happiness. My heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold of even folly. Right? That's, that's like, I can find happiness through foolishness. Right? That's, that's what Halloween is. Right? It's like, hey, let's dress up like crazy people. Like, that'll make us happy. And he says, that also was meaningless. He says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks, and I planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest and growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds, flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and of provinces. I got singers, both men, women, many concubines, a harem, one of the translations says, the delight of the sons of man. And this is how he describes the end of this journey at the end of that chapter. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. And some of you know the sorrow that this rich young ruler personifies for us. The sorrow that comes that you feel right now when the thing that you thought would satisfy you didn't. Now I have good news for you in light of this. 
that thing that you have been banking on to give you hope, joy, power, comfort, that thing was never meant to give you life. That thing was never meant to be your satisfaction. That's why I, I, I try to help people. It's like, hey, you ever wonder why like, marriage is, is sometimes miserable? Because it was never meant to be your ultimate happiness. Uh, you ever wonder why your job is sometimes unfulfilling? Because it was never meant to fulfill you, right? You get the idea? And so I just want to stop for just a moment. I think there's things right now that you think are a problem because they're like, you're like, this isn't working. Can't you tell me how to make this work? And Jesus comes and says, the reason this man was hungry for more wasn't because that he wasn't pursuing these things wrongly. He was pursuing the wrong things altogether. And so going through the book of Ecclesiastes is pretty profound for our church uh, because it's hard to be a Westerner or an American and not be a little bit disillusioned by much. Now, I have great sympathy for this. I can just, as an aside, I was, uh, I was raised on, on uh, alternative music in the 80s and the 90s, and they're all about, uh, I, I actually commend this to you, they're all about chasing things that you love and need and they make you miserable and you love them and need them, Right? shot through the heart and you're to blame you give love a bad name like i love you and then i'm oh, i'm shot what right you get the idea uh and and, and all and, and and one of the indicators of all these like these artists that, that i used to love in this kind of angst filled angst ridden era all all died by suicide and so you hear like nirvana saying things like we wanted to be right we right we wanted to be famous entertainers and then they become famous singing songs about oh we're just dancing monkeys I'm, you know, I'm so embarrassed, right? Entertain me, right? You get the idea? Or I don't know, a love for, for someone that you, I love you, I need you, and then sing something like, I want to push you around, right? I love you, I need you, you make me, you get this idea? This is all wrapped up in the rich young ruler and his story. Well, here's the last little bit. He explains this to the disciples, Hey, this is impossible. This is difficult. This is impossible. And once you realize that, that's when you know you're on to something. Because after all, you might even now be asking, like, what must I do? You say, what must I do? The Sermon on the Mount says it very clearly. I know what you need to do. You need to be perfect. Right now, starting right now, all of you, for the rest of your life, be perfect. And he mentions that language of perfection. And as absurd as it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, we know it's a hyperbole because, again, there's no record in, in like, Christian history of, of this happening. It's not like in, in, the, in the early churches, all the camels started running through the eyes of the needle. Like that, it never happened. It's a hyperbole to illustrate a point that's absurd. And you're meant to think, like, how can I please God? How can I earn merit and favor before God? And he says, I know it's impossible. That's absurd. And so he ends with this reflection on the grace of God that's visible for these people. And he nails it home. Because after all, at this point, you see Peter, he's like, okay, I get it. He wasn't able to leave everything, right? The rich young ruler wasn't able to leave everything. But what does he say? But we have. We've left everything. So what does that mean we get? What does that mean that we have accomplished? What does that mean that now is owed to us? You can, hear Jesus, you can hear Peter, kind of like a, a, like a good millennial, but I'm special. Like, I know, I know the rich young ruler doesn't get it, but what about us, Jesus? We're special. And he's like, well, just like with the rich young ruler, he doesn't necessarily disagree with him. He just kind of presses it into him. 
And he says, okay, you're special. That's true. You are the fulfillment of the 12 tribes of Israel. You, the church, is the fulfillment of God's promises. The people of Jesus, you will, you will reign in the place of what the 12 tribes and the, the, this promised people. That, that is true. But he says something. But let me tell you a story about the kingdom. You're special, Peter. You're right. You're special. But you're special like the guy who did nothing for 11 hours and showed up late to work and still got, got paid anyway. That's grace. That's grace. God is fair and just, but His ways are above our ways. He does not give people what they deserve. And so think of the first picture, as the, the early church uh, leaders like Tertullian would describe the seven deadly sins. The first picture with the rich young ruler is a picture of greed. But the second picture we see here in this, in this story that he tells is the picture of envy covetousness because what you find here is that grace is an offense to the self-righteous grace is an offense to people who think they are owed something and he tells an absurd story right like imagine a guy because the, like the, the hero of the story here is a guy who didn't work all day who shows up and, and gets paid anyway and all i will tell you this is something you need to get used to if you're going to be a Christian. You need to get used to the idea that God does not give people what they deserve. Get used to and get comfortable with the idea that God gives people things they do not deserve at all. Because this man who apparently shows up a little later, a little later, offends what? Offends the people who thought they were owed something. And so it's kind of interesting. You're right, Peter. You're right. You are special. But you're special like a person who gets something he doesn't deserve. And the way that you begin to work against envy and work against greed is grace. is to realize that you have something given to you that you cannot earn, that is not owed to you. And so even then, if you're like, well, what must I do? What must I do? I'm glad you asked. John chapter 6, the disciples had already asked this question as well, according to the Gospel of John. They said to him, so what must we do? What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. Here's what you need to do. Believe in him who he has sent. Cease from your doing to get something from God. Do away with your transactional view of a God as though God is a vendor that you can somehow negotiate with. As though God can somehow owe you something. Grace is an offense to the self-righteous. And even now, if you're like, but no, really. Let that offense stir. Let, that, let it mess with you. There is nothing that you can do. After all, this is the beauty of Sabbath. This is what the Lord's Day we celebrate. Like, think of it this way. It's as if someone were to come to you today on this Sunday where we celebrate, like all Sundays, the resurrection of Jesus on our behalf. Imagine someone saying to you sometime today on the Lord's Day and saying like, hey, what are you going to do to please God today? And you're responding by going, not a thing. Nothing. I will, shall, evermore do nothing to please God. Why? Because the thing that we're called to do is to receive what Christ has done. That's what grace is. It's an unmerited gift. It's the thing that evidently gets these people paid even though they hadn't earned it. So here's some observations to live by. One, we quickly become entitled to something we think we possess, and we quickly become entitled to something we think that we're owed. 
Notice what Notice how offended and how entitled to those things that the rich young ruler was. And notice how offended in the allegory that's an illustration for the disciples, for the people when they think they're not given something that they're owed. You can see this throughout history. I'll put it this way. Greed and entitlement make you a monster. Almost every single atrocity in human history, especially every, uh, every atrocity of violence, is someone thinking or like holding and entitled to something they think is theirs or something that is their owed. Because once you can justify and convince yourself that it's yours, then you can justify anything to keep it. And once you've convinced yourself that it's something that's owed to you, then you will justify any behavior to get it. Everything. It's the history of armed conflict. It's what you're seeing right now in Israel and Gaza. I'm not trying to give you a hot take. No one needs another one of those. Because I'm not just speaking of that, I'm speaking of every single armed conflict. Every single one of them at their root is someone thinking they're entitled to something that's theirs or entitled to something that they're owed. All the way back to our great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather Cain when he killed our great-great-great-great-great-great-uncle Abel. Why? Get the idea? And that kind of greed and entitlement makes you a monster. It makes you unable to let go of the thing that is ultimately killing you. You can see this in the rich young ruler, but in our culture, how like money, wealth, greed, these kinds of things drive us and we can't get rid of them. We're monsters and we don't even know what to do with them. Like, think about it this way. All the things that are killing us, all the things that are wearing us out and wiping us out as a culture, all of these things, we already know what they are. But we can't stop. <laughs> We, can, we, know, we know what drugs do, right? We know what, what living unhealthily does. Right? We, know, we know what alcohol does. We know, we know what these things do, and yet there's something we're like, we can't stop, right? We know what the algorithm is doing, right? In social media, like, we know this. We know that, that social media or the algorithm, it, what does it do? It amplifies the very worst of us. It amplifies us on our worst day, and we can't stop looking at it. It's killing us. Why? Because greed and entitlement make us a monster. Even as it kills you and you dehumanize others with it. So, what do we do? How do we deal with this? What's the response? How is it that we're supposed to keep ourselves from an unhealthy view of rewards? How is it that we're supposed to keep ourselves from an unhealthy view of gifts? How is it we're supposed to keep ourselves with a healthy view of possessions? The answer is we look to the rich young ruler. Jesus is the rich young ruler who let go of all that he possessed and gave up all that he was owed. Why? In order that you and I would have an, inher an eternal inheritance of treasure. You want to be cured and healed of greed and entitlement <laughs> you want to let go of those things that are killing you even though even though you even though you try not to hold on to right you want you want to loosen your grip on them look to the one look to the rich young ruler the true and better rich young ruler who even though he was in possession of the wealth of the universe did what came to be nothing he was owed everything and what did he do he gave to us Get used to grace. Grace is a gift to the humble. It's an offense to the self-righteousness. 
Because after all, grace is an offense to anyone who thinks they are owed. Look to the one who was owed everything and gave it all away. Look to what God has done for us in Jesus. Look at the grace that we experience in him. Realize that ultimately the focus of the Christian life isn't on our own behavior and conduct, but upon his. Notice that what Jesus has done for us, what he has credited to us, is the gift that we receive. Grace is that God deals with us, not in accordance with our character, but that God deals with us in accordance with his. Grace is that God relates to us, not on the basis of how good you and I are, but on the basis of how good Jesus is. Not because of your deeds and your righteousness, but because of his and because they cover ours. The problem is when we think that we have, possess, or are owed something greater than what we are freely given in Jesus. Friend, I want you to know Jesus offers us infinitely more than what you currently possess or what you are currently owed. We think that what we have is giving us joy and life and power. We think that what we are owed gives us joy and life and power, and yet these are merely pointers to who Jesus is and what he's done for us. So how do we respond? Well, in a moment, it's very easy. We join with Christians in history, and we meet together at a table. In a moment here, we're going to celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper, and someone's going to declare a powerful and yet offensive mystery to us, that we come to a table where God himself meets us, and it's not a bargaining table. It's not a table that invites you to recite what you have done. It's a table to call to our remembrance what he has done. And for many of you, that might be an offense. The most difficult thing for you to bring to the table to meet Jesus is nothing. And yet for some of us also, the difficulty is realizing we squandered the last 11 hours and God invites us to the table anyway. And so in a moment, we're going to stand together. We're going to sing as the Apostle Paul prepares the Corinthian church. He says we're going to examine ourselves. We're going to examine who we are in light of Jesus. Not to look at ourselves or what we have done, but to examine, are you standing fully and completely in Jesus? Have you received this gift he offers us? Then friend, for you, receive at the table what is freely given. Someone will declare to you a mystery, the body of Christ. For you. The blood of Christ. For you. And so if you're not a believer, not a Christian, not a, a repenting, baptized believer, well then this isn't for you. It will be a really silly snack. But for those of us who have seen Jesus and our eyes have been opened, it's powerful. Remember that word I, wrote, uh, I read to you? I wrote, I did not. Gospel of John did. I, I read to you out of John chapter 6. This is what happens at the end of that chapter about Jesus saying, trust in the one whom he has sent. He says, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this heavenly bread, right? Give us this always. And Jesus said to them, I am that bread. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me. You can kind of hear the rich young ruler will never thirst, never long, never be unsatisfied again. And so just a moment, we're going to stand together, we're going to sing, prepare ourselves, and as we're ready, you're going to make your way to the, to the back of the room, and in each of the corners of the room, there's going to be a table where someone's going to serve you and declare a mystery to you as you're ready and able, and they're going to say, the body of Christ broken for you, and you'll eat it 
And then you'll be served a bit of juice in which we'll hear another mystery, the blood of Christ shed for us that we will receive in faith. For some of us, maybe the best thing to do, if that, if that isn't something that, that's true of us because of our faith in Jesus, then he says, don't drink to that. Instead, the invitation for you is not to drink and eat to your own condemnation, but to rejoice and sing about Jesus and faith with us. But then we're going to respond in faith. We're going to receive a mystery. A little bit of traffic we're going to stay to the right in each of the aisles as you make your way to the back corners. Someone serves this to you. The gluten-free option is to my right, that is to your left. You'll make your way through as you walk kind of from the left to the right as someone's going to serve to you a mystery. So let's pray together as we prepare for this. Jesus, thank you so much for the rich young ruler. Thank you that you showed him yourself. Thank you that you helped correct some of his misconceptions about true joy, true meaning, and true fulfillment. Thank you that you are good and kind and merciful. Thank you that you show us grace by giving yourself to those who do not deserve it. So for those in this room, maybe, maybe this morning they're looking for something else to do, would you give them the kind of rest that comes when you know you have nothing else to do but that Christ has done all that is necessary for them? Overwhelm them with the powerful truth that Christ has fulfilled the law. He has met the righteous demands so that now, by faith in him, his righteousness covers us up. It makes our unrighteousness un invisible. Maybe for some of us who realize that we kind of live a life of thinking we're owed something, help us to stop for just a moment and behold the one who was owed everything and yet gave everything to us. Help us to meet him now at the table, not a bargaining table, but a banqueting table where the God of the universe gives himself to us freely. We thank you for this mystery and this powerful good work that you've done for rich, arrogant, young people, washed out people who have wasted 11 hours. Thank you that grace is available to all these people. In Jesus' name, amen.